Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes Outcasting and its related programming possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Hello and welcome to The Game Show, Outcasting's LGBTQ plus quiz show where we discuss the news, LGBTQ facts, and more. The format is very simple. Each contestant has prepared three questions on three separate topics and will take turns posing and discussing these questions with the other contestant. The person who correctly answers the most questions or cracks the best jokes is the official Outcasting Supreme Leader of LGBTQ facts and puns. This edition of Outcasting's game show is a smackdown between Vivian and me, Abiram. Hi Vivian, how are you doing today? Hi Abiram, I'm doing well. I'm excited. What about you? Me too. So, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. Okay, so here's my first question. In January, at a restaurant in the Bronx, a married gay couple hugged, or as it was described, affectionately hugged. A female employee reprimanded the gay couple and asked them to leave. So my question is, what happened to that female employee? A. Was she mandated to take an LGBTQ diversity course? B. Did protesters demonstrate in front of her apartment building and did she publicly apologize to them? C. Was she fired and the company released a statement apologizing to the LGBTQ community? Or D. Was she put on disciplinary probation but not fired? I don't think it was B because I don't think protesters would go out of their day to go to someone's apartment building and then like protest there. I think it might be D that she was put on disciplinary probation but not necessarily being fired. And I think that that's because the restaurant doesn't want to like encroach on quote her beliefs or whatever that means. And so maybe this was like a middle ground solution between, you know, her uh, treatment of the gay couple and then like her beliefs and like the restaurant trying to play some sort of politically correct mediator between the two. So that's my final answer. Mm, I think you're very much of a diplomat here, but the right answer was actually C. She was fired and the company released a statement apologizing to the community. Um, I think it's true that the company wanted to play this mediator role, but at the same time, it didn't want to offend the LGBTQ community, so it made sure that it wouldn't be viewed incorrectly at all. That was definitely reassuring to hear because oftentimes when these kinds of things happen and it's usually a company behind it, they normally kind of just play that mediator role and don't really do much for the LGBTQ plus community. So I'm glad that the I actually got this question wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, but I feel like this this female employee, she was fired, but that doesn't necessarily mean her homophobic mindset is going to just go away. I think it just means that she's going to take her worldview with her to whatever next job she applies for. So what's your what's your view on firing people for offenses like these? Do you think firing people really works? I think that to a certain extent, I, I feel like it's justified because you don't want somebody at your workplace who actively spews hate towards the LGBTQ plus community that just makes us feel or makes other members of the LGBTQ plus community feel very ostracized and almost dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, at the same time, I worry that sometimes people who are homophobic and who are you know transphobic, if they get fired for this kind of stuff, then they'll perceive it as like, you know, not being able to express their opinions and they're only going to, you know, increase their spite right. and hate. 
And I worry that that might be the reaction. But um, I think that regardless, I feel like there should be like, you know, this is like more diversity training in workplaces and things like that, so that, you know, less of these incidents happen. And then it doesn't really fall on either side of the extreme. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the best option would have been if C and A were combined. So the the female employee would be fired, but also mandated to take an like an uh, a diversity training course so that she would so that lasting change would be made and she would understand the ramifications of what she did. In this case, there were two men who who hugged or kissed, they just affectionately embraced. But if there were two women in a restaurant and they were to hug in public, I think the general consensus is that there would be nothing wrong with that, right? So I'm wondering, why is it that when two men hug, it is seen as a problem? I think that has a lot to do with the way that society kind of looks at issues in a very masculine and feminine binary. Like, I know a lot of my, like, girlfriends, like, they hug all the time and like they embrace each other all the time in public. They're still straight, um, but that's they're just like very affectionate people in that regard. Um, and that's something that's kind of been reserved for feminine like like girls. So it's something that's not very common among you know masculine like men, mm-hmm. I suppose. And so I feel like when two men are affectionately embracing, the conclusion that most people jump to is not kind of. Is, is to the, you know, maybe that they are gay as opposed to like them maybe just being friends and hugging because that's a little bit more common with girls. Um, I also think that that needs to change because that also kind of diminishes same-sex relationships when it's two women. So like it makes mm-hmm. that, it makes everybody assume that they're just friends when in reality they um, could be in a relationship. So yeah, we need to normalize men being able to hug each other without being able to be seen as gay. Yeah, for me, as a bisexual woman, a lot of times I've heard jokes about how lesbians or bi women are never able to tell when a girl is flirting with them or just being nice because this this affectionate uh, personality is so common between women. Yeah, um... Uh, I hug my like girlfriends like all the time. Like we're <laughs> we're just like we're just very you know we love hugs and stuff. And I think that um, I could never do that with any of my guy friends because it would be seen as weird, and I wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable. And so I wish that that like changed in general. So yeah, yeah, I totally get that. But physical contact is so necessary, and the pandemic has really exposed that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but in this case. The article isn't super clear if the two men in question just hugged or kissed or did something more. But what do you think is the line for public displays of affection in public in general? I think that um, it's very different between like straight couples and then couples that are same like same sex couples and like people who belong to the LGBTQ plus community. I think that the line should kind of be like, holding hands, hugging, maybe like a kiss on the cheek or something like that. Like, I think anything more is just like, if you want to do that stuff, that's cool, but maybe not in a public place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just because, you know, you never know who's like, you never know what other people's comfort levels are around you. And like, I just don't think that that stuff is made for a public place. (laughs) Like, you know, like there's like, there's like, um, like minimal gestures, you know, like, a hug should not be considered 
like an overt and like kind of like a gross public display of affection. Like, I think that that's fine. I think that, you know, anything more than like a kiss on the cheek or something is probably Mm -hmm. where I would draw the line. But what about you? My thoughts exactly. You and I were like on the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a bit more conservative. So if I see two people making out in public, I would feel really uncomfortable by that. But I don't think that was the case here. So I guess that's a very New Yorker perspective on where we draw the line for public displays of affection. Uh, Abhiram, what do you think the line for those displays are in other parts of the world or other parts of the country? Yeah, so I know that a lot of like same sex couples and people who are part of the LGBTQ community still even in like, you know, blue areas like liberal areas, like even in places as cosmopolitan as New York, they still are pretty apprehensive about like showing public displays of affection, even if it's holding hands. And so I can only imagine how much more terrifying it must be in places where, you know, the community and the climate is much less accepting where uh, anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric is kind of common. And so I think that it's definitely a lot more difficult in other parts of the world, especially because, you know, in around like uh, 70 countries, you know, being openly part of the LGBTQ plus community is straight out like outlawed. So there's apprehension kind of, you know, everywhere with same-sex couples, but definitely as the climate becomes less accepting, I feel like, less and less people would even dare to hold hands if they were in a same-sex couple. Dude, your vocabulary in that response was was astronomical. But yeah, I think that like in a lot of redder states, the threshold for public displays of affection would definitely be lower. As mm-hmm. a Chinese-American, China's a lot more conservative with regards to displays of affection and to the LGBTQ community in general. So I can imagine that in places, in public spaces there, couples would be afraid of even holding hands or hugging at all, period. Yeah, and the same can be kind of said about India too. No one really ever holds hands. Um, if Even if the two people are like married and stuff like that, it's so uncommon. It's almost a, like an unspoken like taboo. Like no one ever would dare to do that kind of stuff. You'll never see anything like that. So, yeah, it's definitely much more rare outside of the U.S., maybe outside of like some European countries as well. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll move on to my question. Let's hear it. So um, under social pressure from conservatives, then President Trump imposed a ban in 2017 on transgender people serving in the military. Federal court injunctions kept the ban from being imposed for a year but the Supreme Court allowed it to go forward in 2019. Why wasn't the Trump administration's transgender military ban overturned until President Biden was sworn in? A, Trump would have faced backlash from his voter base. B, the judicial system moved too slowly to overturn the ban. C, the American public was in support of the ban. Or D, it would have caused internal disruption within the U.S. armed forces. I like how you said then-President Trump. Um, I think, I don't think it's C. At least I really don't, I really hope it isn't C. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it would cause an internal disruption within the armed forces. I think they should be organized enough. Uh, I think 
A, Trump's administration was probably in favor of the military ban, so they wouldn't have an incentive to overturn it. So I'm going to go with B, that the judicial system is too slow. And you're right. Um, The judicial system did did move too slow to overturn the ban. There were multiple attempts to try to get it overturned, but the Supreme Court kind of didn't really fall through. It was just a very slow process. And I mean, that's kind of uh, it mars the United States government in a, in a sense. Our government is pretty Definitely. notorious for being slow. Even like the DMV, if we're like down to like all federal oh things, it's like very, very slow and inefficient. And it wasn't always like this though. It was just the Trump administration because I think for a while we as a country and as a society too, as like an American collective, we've been moving towards inclusion and like desegregating and like, you know, all of that stuff in terms of the military and things like that. Like in 2016, President Obama allowed people who had transitioned to a new gender, um, so transgender individuals, to join the military. And so this was kind of like a continuation of the desegregation of the military. And um, it was just like overall like inclusion of people. And so it was very shocking when Trump reinstated the ban. Definitely. I think during the Obama administration, when Democrats controlled most of most of the House and Congress, um, there were a lot of steps forward for more inclusive policies. But then during the Trump administration and all of their anti-LGBTQ political stances, there was this huge backrolling of LGBTQ rights and just a backrolling of democracy in general. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the common arguments like in support of the ban included things like saying that transgender individuals were too much of a medical burden and that their healthcare would be too expensive for the US military. And I think that a lot of that is rooted in like fear mongering. What do you think about like people primarily anti-LGBTQ plus individuals who have said that, you know, transgender people are like a financial or like a medical issue? Like what do you think Where do you think that that misconception comes from? Ooh, uh, can you define fear-mongering? Like, I feel like, you know, they're almost, like, people who are transphobic almost kind of look for excuses to find, you know, to maybe, I guess, shield themselves from dealing with the fact that there are people who exist, you know, outside of the gender binary who could be transgender. And so they might not be aware of that. So maybe they're like, you painting transgender people as like this burden so that they can Ah. keep them away. Yeah, something like that. I think a lot of those transphobic views are the inherent struggle is whether or not they value profit or people. When you started talking about how their medical bills would impose a financial burden, like, okay, but aren't they people first? And that also begs Mm -hmm. the question of, why why is that financial burden so extreme that someone should not be able to serve in the military like it may be their dream right. job or dream occupation to serve in the military and they're serving their country as well so why would you go to such lengths to prevent them from doing that it does sound very bizarre to me because a lot of the people in Trump's voter base and just in general really align with the idea of like being a patriot for this country and joining the military mm. A lot of people are, you know, know people who have served or, you know, whenever we see someone in uniform, we always are, it's customary to say, you know, thank you for your service. Like there's a huge value based on people who are in the military. And what's funny is that this ban 
actually ended up hurting the military because the mi- <laughs> I know it's ridiculous because the military was facing um, staff or like application shortages, like not enough people were applying. And then Trump went ahead and put this ban in and deprived, you know, thousands of highly qualified individuals from ever joining the military, which I think was, you know, probably the pinnacle of the idiocy in this ban. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, really sucks to face the consequences of your own actions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just cognitive dissonance at this point when Mm -hmm. you have that contradiction between serving your country. Oh, but some people shouldn't be considered citizens or real people. So what do we do with them? I think a small tangent I want to go on is that quite honestly, the financial burden shouldn't be that extreme. I know in other mm-hmm. countries, the I mean, obviously, gender transition, surgery and hormone medication costs money, but it shouldn't cost tens of thousands of dollars to the point where it is truly such a financial burden. I think it shows that our healthcare system isn't really looking out for its people as it should. Yeah, there's so many disparities with our healthcare system. And, you know, when and it discriminates against everyone, really. I remember reading this article once and it's, you know, like years ago. And Mm -hmm. I learned that it costs like $6 to make a thing of insulin, like a single you know use or whatever and they're selling it for like thousands of dollars like that's ridiculous to me and it makes it so inaccessible but where these disparities kind of come out the most is when it is you know queer people who are at like when it's talking about queer people or when it's about queer people i'm sure that hormones and other things like that are vastly overpriced and super you know in inaffordable and and it's all because you know there's not a lot of people who do transition like you know not to the same extent that buy like Tylenol for example so it's just another excuse to just keep prices high and you know prevent people from becoming who they want to be with you know hormone therapy and things like that right that's such a good point so with that um at the end of the first round for the score, Vivian has one and I have nothing, um, but I'm glad <laughs> that I got mine wrong. Um, so let's jump into the second question. Vivian, did you want to go? Uh, sure. So in Italy, there is a gay couple who sent their adopted children to a Catholic church. They, the, the couple, the parents, they were worried because they feared that their children would be bullied because they had two dads. What was the general reaction from the institution and from Pope Francis? A, the church so heavily disapproved that they told the family to never come back. B, they were welcomed positively into the program and they felt the environment was inclusive and accepting. C, the family felt really uncomfortable and isolated. Or D, they were welcomed at first but struggled to find their community. Um, so I actually, funny story. I know this because of like Twitter memes and like TikTok videos. <laughs> um, but I, I'm fairly certain it's B. I could be totally, if I'm wrong, like that's kind of embarrassing. Um, but cause I'm saying it with like all my heart, but I remember <laughs> seeing something online about how Pope Francis kind of like shut everyone, like every Catholic or every like person. Yeah. I think it was Catholics that belonged to the Catholic church. Uh, Roman Catholic Church. So I think all like the Catholics who are like spewing hate online about how, you know, being LGBTQ plus isn't a part of my religion. I can't accept it. You know, this, that, and the third. 
And he kind of shut them all up. And when he said that, you know, the Catholic Church is accepting of LGBTQ plus individuals. So I think my answer choice is going to be B. Ding, 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 ding. You are correct. It is B. They were welcomed positively into the program. Yeah. Um, it's good that you are on Twitter and you see what Pope <laughs> Francis has been doing. He is involved in a lot of humanitarian initiatives mm-hmm. and he is shown to be very supportive of the community in general and to many queer people that he's talked to. Uh, however, it is actually confusing sometimes uh, because he has some mixed signals. Even though he's supportive, he still upholds the church's doctrine that says that same-sex relations are sinful, and he still upholds that gender is fixed from birth. So yeah, what do you think about those contradictory doctrines? I mean, I think that you know the Pope's role is a little bit kind of tricky. She's kind of in a bit of a tricky situation there because if the Pope doesn't follow the doctrines, then he's probably, his religious influence is probably going to be undermined. And, Mm. you know, the Pope is kind of one of the most influential people on the planet right now, like didn't get their influence through like money and stuff. Like he's probably going to have to uphold the doctrine, but then also kind of be accepting. And there's a lot of things that going on. But I think that in terms of, you know, defining same-sex relationships as like a sin and all of the stuff that you mentioned, I think that there's like a part of, part of the bigger conversation about how religion excludes um, the acceptance of LGBTQ plus individuals. I think that that is also something that a lot of people have fallen on in terms of like mm-hmm. their defense of being like openly homophobic. They'll say the most homophobic things and they'll be like, I can't support you. It's my religion. Like as if that somehow makes it any better, you know? Yeah, you raise an interesting point about how Pope Francis, even though he is first and foremost a religious figure, he does have to play a lot of politics mm-hmm. in gathering donations for the church and managing public relations between the more religious conservatives and the rest of the general public. Um, but yeah, on your second point about how just the church's doctrine has justified a lot of very anti-LGBTQ actions. I'm like not religious, so I can't say I'm the I'm the expert on this, but I've mm-hmm. seen religious people tell me that the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly homophobic or that first and foremost, it says that you should love your neighbors. And that is the number one principle that Christians should follow. Yeah, no. And um, I think another part of that discourse specifically around Christianity and like Catholicism is that um, it very rarely talks about other religions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like that discussion needs to be had because there are LGBTQ individuals who exist in places that aren't predominantly Christian. Like in India, for example, nowhere in Hinduism, you know, we don't have like books and stuff. I'm like a very... I'm more of like an agnostic Hindu. I just, I'm like not super religious, but we don't have any like scriptures or anything. But as a remnant of British ideals from the time, it's very, very, very taboo to be openly out, uh, to be out as like a part of the LGBTQ community. They only recently decriminalized like, you know, same-sex intercourse. So okay. it's very, very different. And there are other parts I feel like that are intertwined with religion. I feel like culture is also a part of it too, that is left out of this discussion. 
And so I think that it's very interesting to see people go back and forth about how, you know, their religion should allow them to be homophobic. But then at the same time, their religions are also about preaching love and acceptance and embracing one another as individuals in like this larger part of like, you know, humanity. And I think that it's a really weird line they choose to walk because they're kind of just like contradicting themselves left and right. And it's just very strange to me. What are your thoughts about this? Dang, Aviron, that was beautiful. I have a friend who is Christian or Catholic, and she told me that she thinks that being LGBTQ, being gay is considered a sin. But then again, God also considers just a lot of things sinful, such as anger, lust outside of marriage. So there are always things that like it doesn't leave some kind of permanent scar or mark of being unholy on your spirit. So to that extent, being LGBTQ isn't really as bad as many say. It's just like, it's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna go to hell just because you engage in same-sex romance romance or dating. I can also speak to East Asian philosophy. I know you speak to I like I know you are what did you say agnostic Hindu? Hindu? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my mom is Buddhist mm-hmm. and she well quite honestly I don't think Buddhism speaks a lot about LGBTQ identity in general but I do know that in ancient China and like the dynastic age, being bisexual was actually the norm and emperors were expected to have multiple concubines of both men and women. And for those who were transgender, the idea was that when each person reincarnates into their next life, that somehow nature had accidentally slipped up and put that spirit into the wrong gender. So then gender transition is really just considered writing nature's slip up and there's no prescription of morality or holiness to that. It's just nature and and that's it, really. I think that that's like beautiful. I feel like more people (laughs) should believe in that philosophy. I think a lot of people who belong to religions and like Western society, like Christianity, Catholicism, they're all too, I guess, they're easily buying into this idea that like nature and like that creation is like super unchangeable and stuff like that, which is fine. I mean, if that's your religion, then by all means, like believe in that. But I feel like things can change and it's not necessarily a bad thing. You talked about transgender individuals importance or like their role in dynastic Chinese society. The same thing happens in India too. Um, We for centuries have had transgender individuals who were considered holy beings. And if they came to your house, they were bringers of good luck. And so it was never necessarily a bad thing. I think that, like I said before, a lot of this discourse around like religion being the reason why people are homophobic is coming from a very Western perspective that a lot of other societies, surprisingly, don't really share. So I think that that's like an interesting thing to think about, you know? It's always the British imperialism. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, yeah, I want to go back to the one and only Pope Francis. So we talked about how he has, how he struggles to reconcile the view between the religious doctrine and the more progressive public view. There's a similar tension with his views on female priests. He 
believes that women should not become priests, but has also thought and spoken out against sexual and domestic abuse. And he has said that, quote, the feminine genius is needed whenever or wherever we make important decisions, end quote. So how do you think that works? I guess he's kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place. Like, I feel like for the Pope, he's kind of constantly having to, like, he's kind of like the defender of the Catholic faith, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's always going to be the person who, you know, is kind of the authority of of Catholicism. And so he has to evolve with the times, but also kind of stay in line with the doctrines of Catholicism that have existed for centuries. And I feel like his role is going to be difficult but also pivotal if people are going to you know stop hiding behind their religion to be homophobic but then also kind of you know retaining their religion for their moral guides because everyone's entitled to that right but i think that his him and many other religious figures are going to be crucial in you know the progress that we should make as a society to kind of say regardless of what you believe it's imperative that everyone is treated with respect no matter who they are, what they look like, who they choose to love, all of that stuff. Period. It's probably <laughs> too much to ask, you know, a pope to suddenly become the figurehead of the most progressive of cr- progressive movements. But everything right. that he's doing so far, speaking out against sexual and domestic abuse, advocating for women's rights, is definitely he he already goes above and beyond to guarantee human rights and help raise the quality of living for many marginalized groups. So I think regardless of some points of contention, he is that model moral figure already. So yay, Pope Francis. (laughs) Yeah, um, he definitely doesn't need to show up to the pride parades. But as long as he's like, (laughs) you know, doing things that he like he thinks they're right and that would benefit other people, I think that, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving on to my question. In 2020, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Bostock versus Clayton County that discrimination against LGBTQ people in employment violated the prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sex in Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. Recently, President Biden reversed the discriminatory policies of the Trump administration, which provided the largest and most thorough protection for LGBTQ individuals. What was one of Trump's orders that Biden reversed? Was it A, preventing transgender youth from using the bathroom of their choice, B, healthcare policies that unfairly targeted LGBTQ plus individuals, C, preventing LGBTQ parents from adopting children, or D, allowing salary cuts for federal LGBTQ employees solely based on their identity? Is there an option E for all of the above? No, there isn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with option B on healthcare policies because healthcare is really relevant right now. Actually, it's choice A. So, one of Trump's orders in the past was that he prevented transgender youth from using the bathroom of their choice. And basically, under his Department of Education, you know, run by Betsy DeVos. Um, um, they basically had concluded that transgender individuals did not have, they weren't allowed to pick what bathroom they felt more comfortable using. And they had to use the one that was, you know, associated with whatever gender or sex was put on their school record, which is oftentimes 
outdated or inaccurate when it comes to people's like evolving identities. So Biden reversed that pretty much almost instantaneously. I I still think we're in within the 100 day period of his inauguration. So it's really promising and really, you know, encouraging to see those changes being uh, revoked. Definitely. The way that Biden just signed a couple dozen executive orders on the mm-hmm. first few days was was pretty cool, not going to lie. At my school, I'm part of my school's LGBTQ club called GLOW. The acronym is for gay, lesbian, or whatever um, in GLOW. <laughs> <I love that. laughs> Thank you. Um, I remember having a distinct conversation about transgender youth being able to use the bathroom of their choice. At my school's uh, LGBTQ club, we had a conversation about it with our school psychologists and one of the health administrators or health teachers. And I think the decision was ultimately that within a few years, we could have gender neutral bathrooms or to just let trans youth choose the bathroom of their choice since my school is overall pretty liberal. Uh, What about you? Have you had any experience with this with this order? Yeah, so um, we have gender neutral bathrooms at our school and there were concerns with having them unlocked because we didn't want to like force people to out themselves to the school administration if they didn't feel comfortable but then again at the same time we wanted to have that option like open like people would just go into those bathrooms and just like vape and stuff um (laughs) which was like a problem because then the administration was kind of like in a hard place and then they like locked the bathrooms and it was like this whole back and forth but ultimately for the next year i think we decided we had met with them, like I'm part of my school's GSA and Gender Equality Club, which kind of work in tandem with one another about these kinds of issues. And so we decided that like people would indicate whether they needed access to those bathrooms, like at the beginning of the school year, or if they'd like that, and then they would be given a key. You know, obviously, I feel like that definitely relies on the honors system. And people need to be genuine about actually needing access to those restrooms. But overall, I think it's a step in the right direction for making our school a much more inclusive and safer space. Definitely. It's so cool that your school already has instituted these gender neutral bathrooms. I relate to the problem of other peers vaping in the bathrooms. Uh, I would remember, especially during the fall, there would always be fire alarms going off because <laughs> someone vaped and triggered the smoke detectors. So then everyone would have to go outside. Sometimes it would be in the middle of winter as well. So everyone would be really mad. But yeah, I think that ultimately it's a step in the right direction. And it's good that your school is doing that. I noticed that you said that this order was based off of Title Seven in the Federal Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've heard of that. Um, civil rights law. I personally have more experience with Title IX, which talks about discrimination, what which prevents like sex-based or gender-based discrimination in K through 12 and college schooling. And there was recently a law last May passed by the Secretary of Education at the time, Betsy DeVos, who said Ugh. who changed. I know, right? Uh, He (laughs) altered the definition of sexual harassment to have a much more narrower scope. And I know that a lot of people protested that decision. So I hope that Biden will reverse that order as well. 
Yeah, I think that Biden's executive order had a lot of implications for youth, especially. I think that he introduced like one of the most sweeping reforms in terms of protecting LGBTQ plus individuals. And if you want to learn more about Title IX, at Outcasting, we produce a series on Title IX and how it can be used to protect transgender youth in an educational setting. You can find it on our website, outcastingmedia.org. So with that, that concludes the second round. The score is tied at both one point each for Vivian and me. And so Vivian, do you want to jump into your third question? All right, I'm ready for the tiebreaker. In Mississippi, there is a bill in the state legislature that is currently under review. In this proposal, transgender people under a certain age would not be able to receive transition-related health care. Under this proposal, not only are trans people under this age not allowed to seek gender-affirming care, but medical professionals could be punished for talking about gender identity with the patient without the parent's approval. If the proposal is enacted, how old would one have to be to seek transition-related healthcare? A, 13, when one first becomes a teenager. B, 16, when one can start to learn to drive. C, 18, when one becomes an adult officially. Or D, 21, when one can start drinking. So I think I'm going to go with C in 18. I think that, you know, Mississippi politicians have been quite notorious for being bigoted. I remember reading or watching this video about how their state flag still has the Confederate flag in it. And it was like that for a while. And until the 21st century, there wasn't any discourse about removing it. So I don't expect a ton, no, have any high hopes for the state of Mississippi. No offense if you're from Mississippi or anything, but like... um, that's just my perspective. And I think that at age 18, I think that that's when Mississippi state legislatures can exercise all of their control. But I think that when people become 18, they become an adult. And so I think, you know, there's different changes for your health care. And some people are, I think that there's some, I forget what it is, but there's something talking about how you can stay on your parents' health insurance until you're like 26 or something. I'm not sure if this is related, but I think my answer is going to still be 18 because I think that that's when people become an adult. And I don't think that Mississippi was able to like make it past that age mm. to restrict it. Well, Aviram, I think you're going to have to lower your standards for Mississippi even more because the correct answer is D, 21. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's ridiculous that at around that age, young kids can already do so many other things. People can enlist in the military at 17 by 18, which is your which was your answer. Youth can vote in elections, own a gun, and when they're 15 they can even get married with parental consent. By 21, most people are in college and choosing majors for their careers for their entire lives. And all of these actions require just as much responsibility if not more so than the decision Mm -hmm. to seek gender transition related surgery. So yeah, it's a real shocker. What do you think? I mean, I wish I could say I was surprised, but then again, this is Mississippi and I really did not have many high hopes to begin with. Um, I think that this is very excessive. Um, And, you know, if this ever reaches the ears of Mississippi politicians, I would urge you to like reflect on your choices because this is like absurd. Um, Like, I can't, I I can't believe that this actually exists. 
And, you know, back to kind of what we were talking about with the bathroom access, like we both live in New York. We both live in a very blue area of New York. Discussions around inclusion, equality, and accessibility for people who are in the LGBTQ plus community are fairly common. And if they're not common, they fall on receptive ears. But in places like Mississippi, where this tomfoolery takes place, um, <laughs> I don't think that that is something that's as common. And I, huh, my, my heart is with everyone in the LGBTQ community who lives in places where these discussions can't be had as freely. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that, you know, they're okay and they're doing the best that they can. But I think one other thing that I wanted to touch upon is like the part about like healthcare. You know, I read this article about this transgender individual and their experience with, you know, being a part of it, like be going through the healthcare system. And the part that stuck out, like stood out to me was when, you know, they would go in to a doctor, right? Like if they, they moved cities and they had to schedule an appointment with a doctor and they were terrified because they had no idea if the doctor was going to be transphobic, right? Like mm-hmm. when you fill out your, like, I don't really know how healthcare works, but I'm assuming you don't really get to choose your doctor. And there's not really an option to be like, I don't want a transphobic doctor. Like that kind of thing can't be screened out. It can't be, you know, filtered out in background checks because that kind of thing doesn't really exist unless it's like a track record, right? So I just worry that, you know, these things become too common and these disparities in healthcare really need to be changed to make transgender people feel more safe. And because, you know, everyone should be, you know, allowed to have safe care, health care. So I think it's bizarre that there's so many inequalities facing transgender people right now. Right. On the note of health care, it's even worse because someone in Mississippi can't really check the track mm-hmm. record much anymore. Because if the motion is passed, medical professionals won't be allowed to give patients the opportunity to consider surgery. And patients under 21 are not able to do anything gender-related without the consent of their parents. So yeah, I think this is really just a constitutional issue Mm -hmm. in general. One of the many supporters of the ban say that trans people under the age of 21, quote, are incapable of comprehending the negative implications and life-altering difficulties of their decision, end quote. That's been clearly disputed by science and many studies where children are able to experience and comprehend their dysphoria in elementary school. I'm just wondering, what do these Bill supporters think of teenagers? I don't really know. But, you know, if Mississippi is anything like the United States legislatures as a whole, I'm pretty sure it's probably run by a bunch of old white dudes who probably don't (laughs) have as much of uh, knowledge with transgender experiences i think that it's like very very bizarre and i think that a lot of people don't really look at the flip side right people ever since like i I remember like maybe when i was like five or six people around me would be like oh do you have a crush on this girl or like whatever Mm -hmm. and like everybody's so quick to assume that i am straight and i know that i'm straight and that i was going to be that way for you know however for the rest of my life right? But no one ever thinks that, oh, what if my child is not straight? Could be something else, right? People are so quick to be, to assume and think that everyone is just straight. And then when you ask them about it, they'll be like, oh, they know that. They, 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 it's, it's easier for them to comprehend. 
but it's just as easy for a transgender person to know that they're transgender or that they weren't born in the right body. It's just as easy for someone to know if they're gay or whatever. So I think that that misconception is also very commonplace among supporters of these types of policies. Yeah, beyond the transphobic issues, I think a lot of it is about how old people really do underestimate teenagers today. Because we're both teenagers ourselves, clearly getting surgery is a very difficult decision. And anyone would spend weeks and months thinking about it and dozens of hours researching about the process. And furthermore, getting transition-related surgery is not some kind of fad or hyped up activity like Mm -hmm. drinking alcohol or maybe owning a gun. At the same time, the proposal would prohibit the state from, quote, infringing on parents' rights to decide whether or not to block their children from treatment. So I'm wondering, like, why would this apply to youth up to the age of 21? (laughs) I think that there is like some merit between you know letting someone under the age of 18 decide like this life-changing surgery obviously i'm you know they need to know that and stuff like that but you know parental consent is still required when you're you know 15 16 and stuff like that those are conversations that people should be having with their parents and something that state legislature has no role in you know some legislation that was drafted in the state capitol or the or washington dc is not going to accurately ever reflect the conversations that people will have at the dinner table about whether they want to go through with these surgeries or whether they want to go through with this therapy. So I think that it's very, very strange and just something that shouldn't really be a question of whether people should or should not be allowed to have the surgery, but rather, you know, the government should take more of a stance, state and federal, to be like, if you want to have this surgery, if you want to go through this process, you can do it safely and here's how. If you don't want to, that's cool too. But they should never be in a position to just outright ban a health procedure because the governments will never know what goes on in a hospital room and those dinner table conversations that are really, really difficult to have. Yeah, the biggest issue and the ultimate constitutional crisis is that this motion would infringe on a person's autonomy and right to liberty because it's ultimately Mm -hmm. about imposing a certain dogma, a certain viewpoint on others, instead of giving them the choice, as you talked about, which is everything that the government is supposed to do. And one last part about the proposal is that it would protect conversion therapy and any similar form of guidance. I I would say that going through experiences like conversion therapy have even more negative implications and with possibly life-altering trauma. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and also Outcasting did a series on conversion therapy last year in 2020. You can find it on our website, outcastingmedia.org. So Abhiram, I have one last question on this topic. Do you think that this motion will be passed You know, given the climate in Mississippi, given the way people have, you know, given this characterization of conversion therapy as, quote, guidance, whatever that means, um, I think that, unfortunately, this bill might pass. And even if it does, right, and there's national outrage, as there should be from 
people all over the country, even the world, this country's judicial system moves at the pace of a snail. And so it's going to take a while for this bill to even be deemed unconstitutional, to go through the whole process. And so given the way that our system works, I genuinely hope that this bill isn't passed, but I ultimately think that it will be. Ooh, I think that given the amount of time it will need to be deliberated, I think that in that time, viewpoints may have shifted towards the more socially liberal and that enough people will be able to strike it down. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) So I guess we'll go to my third and final question. So in 2020, President Trump signed an executive order that prohibited the teachings of divisive concepts in federal agencies' diversity training programs. Recently, President Biden rescinded this executive order as a part of his many reforms to correct the harmful policies of the Trump administration. What were some of the impacts of Trump's executive order? Was it A, government agencies ended diversity training and events regarding gender-based oppression? B, diversity training was no longer required in educational settings permitted by the education department? C, certain agencies like the State Department canceled diversity training and events pertaining to LGBTQ plus equality and racial issues, or D, it canceled all diversity and inclusion training outright in federal agencies and banned it going into the future. Oh my, I think I'm not going to go with A because gender-based oppression is not a divisive concept. I really hope it wasn't canceled in any federal agency or any part of the federal government. But I can believe that in certain states that are much more Republican-leaning, that policymakers were able to vote in favor of canceling diversity training. So I'm going to go with option C, that certain agencies canceled diversity training. And you are right. Um, Certain agencies, federal ones like the State Department, canceled diversity training and events pertaining to LGBTQ plus equality and racial issues which is extremely damaging because, you know, as it is, being a part of the workforce as a member of the LGBTQ plus community can be very, very difficult because you don't know if you're going to be supported. You don't know if you're going to be welcomed in your workplace. And so diversity trainings are a step in the right direction to make sure that everyone is accommodating one another. And to reverse that and have that come from a federal level is just inexcusable. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you said state department, when you read option C, I thought you meant a state level department, not the federal. Oh, (laughs) Oh, wow. I really got lucky there. But yeah, I definitely agree with everything that you said. Obviously, I'm not employed in any official uh, job or organization. But my experience with debate has taught me that when judges receive a small card or a small reminder before their their paper, um, like at the beginning of every tournament, when they receive that little card that says to remember to take into account your cognitive biases, I've heard that the records for a lot of female and POC debaters goes up. So it's it's made clear to mm-hmm. me how important small reminders and diversity training is. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, given the time for Trump to like implement that, you know, it was in the 21st century. We really can't outright ban diversity training. We're in a climate where it's becoming the norm in so many places. So the divisive concepts that were banned 
from federal agencies were centered around like whether the US was like racist or sexist or like other agencies being part of that two categories. It wasn't talking about like discrimination based on identity, sexual orientation, gender, and all of those things. And the part of this bizarre order that stood out to me the most was that it banned any content that instill or might instill guilt, discomfort, anguish, or any other psychological distress on the account of his or her sex or race, I believe. As if all the marginalized groups in history didn't experience any anguish or discomfort, like that just doesn't really (laughs) make sense to me because if one of the divisive concepts is about whether or not the U.S. is sexist or racist, it is important to both be proud of your country and to be able to criticize it freely. When the executive order prohibits teaching ideas that a country could be imperfect or that a country could have a complicated past, I think that is also really harmful to the freedom of speech and to having discourse and just being self-aware and aware of your nation at all. Oh, I 100% agree. And I think the point about discourse is important because the word that stood out to me was guilt. And Trump basically said that people shouldn't feel guilt over their sex or race. So he was basically saying that, you know, don't acknowledge. Like a lot of people's uh, arguments for denying racial privilege is just that, you know, you don't know what I went through. White people can face hardships too. It's not just a race thing. And so I feel like that word guilt was meant to target people who were in the majority, you know, white people, cishet people who didn't face oppression, but also, you know, felt some sort of guilt that they couldn't process. And so he's basically kind of saying that structures of power don't exist and you shouldn't feel bad if there's oppression around you basically is what I think that guilt was trying to get at. And I think that that's super invalidating because white guilt, cishet guilt is very damaging to people who aren't white and people who aren't cishet. And so I just was taken aback by that word. And I think that it was just very thinly veiled racism, honestly. And just to be clear, when we say cishet, we're talking about cisgender heterosexual people. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm a little bit torn on what guilt actually does for some people. So if you were to have a white or cishet person who felt guilty, perhaps that's good because they can transform it because that's a sign of empathy. Right. Of what happened to other groups in the past or even right now. And that guilt can be transformed into advocating for more social justice. But on the other hand, guilt as an emotion by itself, if someone is perhaps too empathetic, then it could be mentally a bit overwhelming for that individual. But it's all about teaching people in those diversity training programs about how to regulate and how to understand the emotions from learning about historical trauma. So I think that teaching these divisive concepts is critical to having more dialogue and discourse about everything that is happening and to making more productive changes in the future. 
I agree. I think that, you know, honestly, I haven't really thought about guilt being a positive thing and not open my eyes. Um, maybe guilt towards and empathy related to that is a good thing. And, you know, I think that, like I, like you said, teaching these kinds of things is important. And I think that the federal government making that message under the Trump administration that, you know, doesn't really matter whether you teach on LGBTQ equality or not, has widespread ramifications. So, for example, many companies in the private sector banned their diversity programs altogether. And they did that because it, they were afraid of the government doing something called sanctions of non-compliance, which is just the government taking action against the companies who continue to do diversity training when the government kind of banned it or like stopped doing it within its own agencies. Because the order was a little bit unclear and companies feared that they didn't, you know, they might get some sort of punishment from the US government. So they banned their trainings altogether. And I think that that is just a step in the wrong direction. And we're taking too many steps backwards with that. And it's really important to have someone like Biden who reversed all of these Trump era policies and really showed that the federal government is allying itself with the LGBTQ plus community. And then that will then trickle down and make good norms for the private sector too. Period. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you know what actually happens in those diversity training programs? Um, so I work with an organization outside of school and we had to do some diversity training for it just because we interact with different types of people and stuff like that. And this was a student-led organization, by the way. And so what we did was we watched a few YouTube videos from this professor at UCLA who talked about implicit and like implicit biases and other ways of thinking and things like that. And so, you know, I think for a student-led organization, I think that was a pretty decent diversity training. And I think at a professional level, having events talking about specific issues like racism and sexism and homophobia, transphobia, and things of that nature are probably going to be required, like more detail. But I think that that's a good thing to include. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I don't have much personal experience, but everything that you mentioned sounds very much of a step in the right direction. I think today there is a lot more covert biases compared to overt forms, the clear-cut forms of discrimination. And it's really important to have specific lessons and education and a pedagogy pedagogy dedicated to promoting inclusivity. I completely agree with that. And I think that it's super important that we have those trainings and those programs to make sure that everyone is being treated fairly and everyone's treating each other fairly too. And that concludes the questions for our game show. And the final score is with Vivian having two points and me having one. So Vivian... <laughs> is the winner of this Thank installment you. of the game show. And, <laughs> and yeah, I really enjoyed sitting down and recording this with you. I thought the questions were super fun and I learned stuff that, you know, I didn't really learn about. Like I knew what Mississippi was like a terrible place to be, but I didn't know it was like that bad. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, good job to you too. We really got political talking about Trump and Biden and all of these executive orders and court cases. This was a really engaging conversation and you are so eloquent and so much fun to talk to. Thank you. So thanks for playing the Outcasting game show with me, Vivian. 
Thank you, Abhiram. <laughs>